Welcome back to the Bent Not Broken podcast. I feel like Bent Not Broken is particularly germane right now for you because your body is not feeling great. I feel very bent. Yes. <laughs> yes. How um, are you managing your It's terrible. Body? I'm in a lot of pain and pain is, it just sort of makes you miserable and mm-hmm. unhappy and I'm trying to figure out what's wrong, but my joints are deteriorating. Is that mostly gymnastics related, do you think, or more like I just... I don't think it is. I mean, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder after my third child was born mm. and... um it was so all over my whole body that it, I don't think it was related to gymnastics or injuries, but it does also make my injuries worse. Right, right. So I'm trying to figure out what's going on. But in the meantime, I'm bent over like a little old lady. <laughs> like my hips hurt so much, it's hard to stand up straight, which mm. sounds really pathetic. How does that affect your concentration? Because I find that when I'm in pain, one of the things that goes is my ability to be present. And, and in some ways that manifests as I'm way less funny than I would like to be, which is frustrating. (laughs) I'm less patient and more frustrated and Mm. inclined to take things out on my husband (laughs) (laughs) right? because I just, it, it lowers your, I I don't know. It just lowers my level of patience. You know, I feel sort of low grade or high grade frustration all the time because you're constantly, kind of battling this discomfort, I'll figure it out, Mm -hmm. but it's not that fun. It dovetails nicely with our chief topic today, which is basically suffering (laughs) across the board. Um, I do want to ask, uh, because I'm always going to ask, how would you rate your current resilience scale of one to 10? I actually feel quite resilient because I'm Mm. sort of, you know, getting through it. I just wish I felt less impatient and frustrated mm-hmm. and even tired because it actually hurts to lie down and sleep my Ooh, hips yeah. so That's... poor sleep doesn't help <laughs> but I have faith that I will well first of all if you anyone out there who has an auto I mean you have these flare-ups and then they go away so it could just magically one day when I wake up I could just feel a ton better or and I could been, find a good treatment you've been through a lot in the last Two years, though. You're just from a stress standpoint. Yeah, it's you been heavy. Eyes, it's is, been heavy. I'm like, it's hard to capture in audio. Yeah. A friend said that to me the other day, and I think I started to cry because I was like, I'm just going. Like, I just keep going. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but it's a lot mm-hmm. to just keep going sometimes. Right. I just, I would, would argue for that awareness of the fact that this last two years has been a lot. Yes. But the way I get through it is I keep going until everything gets better and then it's fine. That's what I do, Paul. That's how I do it. I've managed this throughout. Um, Well, I I just, I think there's some, a lesson in there in that we all are prone to these storing up times in our life, I guess. Yeah. And then we, Sort of like, do you know that we didn't, as a as a species, figure out that sex caused pregnancy until pretty late in the game? Because if you think about it, it is kind of because it's nine months Random. later, yeah, right. You're like, well, I did this thing a whole lot of time ago, and there was no apparent, there was no immediate appearance of a pregnancy, 
right? Right. So they were probably just having sex all the time and then occasionally people would be pregnant. So it wasn't a cause effect relationship yeah. because it's a very long time. And I think that's really true for stress building up, right? I think that's right. We don't see the connection because we're like, well, yesterday was fine, but we're not thinking about, well, yeah, but for the last year I've been carrying the load of taking care of my parents or whatever the thing yeah. might be. Right. That I think that's down. right. I think the one thing though, for myself that I know about myself is what brings me joy and even comfort is, is working on something that I care about mm -hmm. doing work. I find joy might not be the right word satisfaction. Um, I, if I work at something and I do it and I achieve it, whether it's, you know, my professional career or making a film or writing a book, that sense of accomplishment and, and satisfaction that gives me joy. And mm -hmm. so my instinct is to often work and do something that will make me feel sort of proud of myself. I'm not great at resting. Mm -hmm. um, I'm working on that, <laughs> but I'm also working on accepting that that's who I am. Like, that's what I, that's what I like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. I was just working with a group around questions of why. So like a business group. And it was interesting having the light come on for some of them when they realized it was okay to say, I like to feel better at a thing or I like to get better at. Yeah. This thing, right? And that was interesting to me because I was like, well, duh. But I think maybe as a culture or, or maybe it has something to do with, these are a bunch of Midwesterners like myself where you're almost like not allowed to say, I want to get better at things. Really? Which is weird, right? Because in sports, you, you would, of course, assume, yes, I have to get better or I will get left behind. But I don't I, the point, though, of this is not that it exists, but that people weren't aware that they liked it until we got them to talk about it, which I thought yeah, was I don't know why. I mean, that might reveal something a little psycho about me. I mean, there's some things I do for the sheer enjoyment of just doing it. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's less about getting better at something. It's more about achieving something, making, for me, achieving doesn't mean getting a job or making a certain amount of money. It's like, I made this thing. Mm -hmm. Like oh, I yeah. wrote the book or right. I made the film. I have this artifact of the work that can be put into the world and move people to mm -hmm. think about things. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. And I, th and one of the things I have loved recently in some of the work I'm doing is getting that light to turn back on for people where they realize, oh yes, I do love creation. Even if the creation is a business plan yeah. or I made a really impressive logo for somebody, right? right. Like that is a win. It is. Um, but I, I don't know what it is about like where we've kind of diluted that in people's work days to some degree. That they don't take any sort of pride in that i think they they know it's deep down it's there but they aren't attached to it potentially i think there's i think i talked about this before there's too much emphasis on sort of balance and not attaching yourself to outcomes mm. fuck that i'm very <laughs> attached to the outcome i wouldn't put this work in if i wasn't attached to the outcome which doesn't mean i want to you know win an oscar or think that's even you know, in the cards for the film I'm making, but I want to make the film and I want people to see it mm -hmm. and I want them to talk about it mm -hmm. and I want it to, you know, start a conversation. I want that. 
I don't know. I, if I wasn't attached to any outcome, I mean, the reason that whole thing is in the ether is so this is related to what we're going to talk about is so that you're not too devastated by a poor outcome. Sure. I mean, in a sense, it's like, because you've heard, have you heard that? Or maybe it's just in the women's self-help world. Like, don't be too attached to the outcome. I mean, that's my business, really, right? You better The process is the, is the product, right? I'm saying that you have to attach to the, the process. You do, but okay, let's take your business. Mm-hmm. Aren't you attached to the outcome of it working and being a viable business? Of course. But I, what I would say always, or what I will say is that the only way to get to that outcome is to fall in love with the process. I agree with that. And I, I agree with the idea that if it doesn't work, Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't, that shouldn't necessarily reflect on you as a human being, right? If it, so I can unattach in that way. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make me a bad person if this thing didn't work, Yeah, but I'm still attached to the outcome. When I sat to start to write a book, I would have been disappointed in myself if I didn't finish. Sure. Now, if no one ever reads it, I would be disappointed. I mean, why I put in all this work because it had something to say. I would like for people to read it. So I don't know. I think you have to be somewhat invested in an outcome, but also enjoy the process. Right. I would say that there's a difference between the finishing of the book and then the expectation that people will like it because you can't control whether people are going to like it. It's yeah, I don't care if they like it. Impossible. I want them to read it. I don't care right. if they re- read it and it makes them angry. And they sure. <laughs> well, I mean that we want. I've always always said that like your job as a writer of books is to get people from the start to the finish. It's not that they should like it. You just have to get them through it. Yeah. First of all, but you you can't even really control whether people will read it because it may have come at the wrong time or whatever. Of course. So, but you can I still think, be disappointed if they don't. Sure. Yeah. Of course. But I think there's value in the outcome being I finished that book, I wrote that book, and that was enough. And then I'm able to decide what was good and what was bad. I I agree with that. It's one of the reasons I like writing in that form. For many years, I tried my hand at screenplays. And the fact is, is when you write a screenplay, it's not finished because it's supposed to be a movie. Mm -hmm. And there's like a million more steps. And I'm stupidly trying to do that right now, too. And making a documentary and the steps in that involve all kinds of drudgery, like fundraising, which is not something I enjoy doing. Um, but writing a screenplay, it's not a finished product. When you write a book, even if no one publishes it, it's a book. It's a so book. you can still derive some satisfaction from that. But I guess I'm just, I don't know. I don't have an issue with the ta- I think the only reason not to hope for some sort of outcome and do your best to achieve that is to avoid disappointment. And mm-hmm. I think avoiding disappointment as a strategy in life means you're going to have a really boring life that exists between this very narrow band of like, you're never really, really sad, but you're never really, really happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we've talked about robbing people of peak human experience. Yeah. Right. That if you, if you stay in that muddled middle forever, you don't ever get that peak experience of I accomplished this difficult thing. Yeah. Whether it's writing a book or making a movie or starting a business, whatever it is. Um, I would, I guess say that people who are very attached to outcomes probably need to be less attached to outcomes and people who aren't at all then need to be more attached to outcomes. So it's more, 
on a individual basis, right? Yeah. So as a society, I think we have actually, in some ways, we've swerved too far (laughs) to one, yeah, one direction. In that, but what the people that I often work with are are so attached to outcomes that we have to get them back to attaching to process. I think that's fair. I always say you don't raise all your children the same way. I mean, there's these sort of you know, tomes about child rearing. And the fact is, is every child is different. And if you have a child like one of mine that worked like crazy at his homework, did all the extra credit, had to have the first answer in class, was, you know, disappointed in himself if he didn't. Like, I would always tell him, mm-hmm. don't do that work today. Right. Go outside and play. You don't need to. Hey, who cares if you get a B plus this time instead of an A plus? Like, take your foot off the gas. I can tell I have some kids <laughs> young still. It's going to be a little different than that. Right. You need to do the work. You don't raise every child differently. And not every person needs the same coaching and guidance mm-hmm. to accomplish what they want to right. accomplish. And in America today, we have forgotten, this is this is what we want to get into, that uh, – that most of life is similar to what you're dealing with right now, which is that it's suffering. <laughs> it's true. I sent you um, a piece that I was moved by maybe mm-hmm. a week or two ago by a writer that I like, Freddie DeBoer. He was responding to a piece by Jonathan Haidt. We think we've decided it's Jonathan Haidt, even yeah. though both of us have seen him speak. And I've and even we, met him. We have met him, and yeah, we should know better. But we think it's height. Yeah, that's what the Google says. <laughs> anyway, so I'll, I'm going to share a little bit of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is from a Substack piece of his, I believe. Is that right? Of De Boers. Yes. Yeah. If I know one thing is true about every single person reading this, it's that at some point in 2023, they will suffer. Teaching people how to suffer, how to respond to suffering and survive suffering and grow from suffering is one of the most essential tasks of any community because suffering is inevitable. And I do think that we have lost sight of this essential element of growing up in contemporary society as armies of helicopter parents pull the leash on their kids tighter and tighter and as harm reduction has eaten every other element of left politics. Yeah, I think that's a good place to pause. (laughs) So, well... I I had a slightly different, because he goes on to say, I would never use the snowflake insult, which is stupid and demeaning, and my concerns have nothing whatsoever to do with insulting or even judging those young people who have not been taught resilience. I am concerned for them on their behalf because I myself have learned the importance of resilience, and I want them to enjoy the benefits of that essential trait, too. And that's, I think, my one frustration with both his piece and then also Jonathan Haidt's piece, which is in the wall street journal, there is this uh, methodology in writing an argument where you state your thesis, you back it up with three pieces of um, evidence, and then you address the other side, right? Like, well, now it should be said that, and then you kind of finish by concluding your piece. Right. And I, I am actually sort of tired of that. um, Well, to be fair moment, because and and he says this like I would never use the snowflake insult and the snowflake insult has potentially gotten kind of overused uh, I guess but I do think that we're in that mode now where we should just err on the side of telling people you're going to suffer and we have to train in you the ability to get through it full stop right like 
because we've gone so far the other direction. Yeah, which doesn't mean you have to torture children. <laughs> this is not As a we've pro discussed. torture podcast. No, but an acknowledgement. I think I think what Freddie is getting at, and we have talked about with helicopter parenting, and I have my own theories about how and why that evolved. I think mm-hmm. it's my generation's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, Gen X, you know, we were latchkey kids. We were left to our own devices for a lot of kids. They suffered in that and they are doing the opposite in how they parent their kids. So instead of no one around ever, they're around to manage every decision and make sure every outcome is perfect. Mm -hmm. And they want more data and take longer to make decisions about everything from when do I introduce bananas to what kindergarten is my child going to go to. Thinking that with enough thought and management, they can always provoke a perfect outcome. Mm -hmm. And that is a lie. (laughs) It's not possible. Your child will suffer. They will have, you know, they will be upset. You will make a poor choice. And teaching them that every decision is so consequential and there is indeed a perfect outcome creates its own problems. I mean, you create a neurotic person who can't make a decision and who thinks that they don't need to suffer if only they think long enough and hard enough about every decision. Mm -hmm. And so their expectation is to be sort of really, really happy or just sort of medium, but never sad and Mm. depressed and suffering. And like, it's not, it's not possible. It's an unreasonable expectation. And I just think it creates this neuroses, like this inability to make a decision for fear of making the wrong one. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, well, let me start with a statement instead of a question. I would say that based on my travels, other cultures that are older than American culture are more attuned to the reality of life being mostly suffering and that this could also be a symptom of our youth as a country that we think we can fix everything. Does that make sense? Because I think when you're like, when I was in, when I was living in Greece or Russia, especially Russia, right? Like they know they're it's, it's baked into the culture of like, it's all suffering. Life is hard. It's always been hard. It's always winter. There's never enough food. Like be winter happy. Winter is coming. Winter <laughs> is coming. Be yeah. happy when you have a fire and a vodka and some food to eat. And I think there's something uniquely American about this attitude that there should never be suffering. If you go even further back, if you look at uh, Indian culture, I don't mean American Indian, I mean actual like yeah. Indian and Buddhist culture, it's all about Life sure. is suffering, right? Maybe, although I think this is the first generation in America that has been rear, reared this way. Mm. So it's, yeah. I so don't think, I, I definitely wasn't. I never had any expectation that there was a perfect way to make a decision that would create a perfect outcome. Mm-hmm. I was, so I'm enough younger than you that I was a big part of the self-esteem movement of the 80s. Yeah, I definitely did not experience that. <laughs> Where it was the beginning of the the participation trophy era, yeah, as it were. I got, we were I there was a none. lot of talk of like we got to make sure everybody's self esteem is really high. And I would look around and be like, I don't know if his self esteem should be so high. He kind of sucks. <laughs> like I'm not sure this is a good idea. Um, no one worried about that at my gym. Right. No one. So that like that's I think my experience maybe a little different. I mean, people weren't worried about that with the basketball teams I played on, but in the classroom, it was becoming a thing. This idea that like I was actually researching recently, the 
Do you remember uh, Free to Be You and Me? Mm-hmm. So that was 1972, I believe. And I do think that that was a part of this change in the culture, right? That like everybody's okay just the way they are, which has noble intentions, but which has these really awful knock-on effects as we're discussing. Yeah, I think that's a piece of it, certainly. And that, you know, that's my era. That's just a few years after I was born and I had the book and it was very much in the house and it was, you know, self-acceptance and all this. And, but there was, kids had some, this is all sort of well-tread territory, you know, the helicopter parent movement, like is a response. I mean, we, I rode my bike around the neighborhood at five years old. I walked to ballet class from school at, you know, 10 years old. Like, this is just what you did. Kids had freedom. And sometimes, you know, sometimes that led to, Poor decisions. I don't know. There wasn't this idea that, oh my God, we have to spend so much time making every decision for our child because it's of such consequential importance that she get into the right high school and get into the right college and her whole life hinges on this, mm-hmm. which is slightly, it's, it's, um, it's part of the same well, it's, movement, but it's a separate thing right. and it makes me crazy. And I watched it. You know, my older kids are 22 and 19, and I watched it in San Francisco from the day they were born. It was like everything. When do I, how long do I nurse? I mean, people would fret about these things. Mm. When do I introduce food? Should it be peas or bananas? If I do bananas first, will they never eat a vegetable? No, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And, you know, they start applying to preschools when the child is born because they have to go to the right preschool or they won't get into the. And I was like, this is nuts. Well, it's an interesting paradox, too, because you're saying, not you, but somebody is saying on one hand, you're free to be whomever you would like to be. But on the other hand, you also have to be perfect. Yeah. And this affliction I'm talking about, to be clear, it's elite coastal circles, like mm-hmm. people who are struggling to get by. I, you know, I don't think this is happening. This is, but by elite, I don't mean billionaires. Yeah. I just mean the professional class, you know? Um, well, and it's also in the culture because that is what the online world is showing us. Right. Yeah. So it gets reinforced. So I think it then makes the people who maybe aren't participating in it feel like they should be participating. I think that's correct. But the what always concerned me about it was this idea that there was some perfect answer. Mm -hmm. There isn't. Right. Feed your kid whatever. I mean, don't give them arsenic, but like feed them whatever. Do you? I, I, I remember I would think like. I don't think that in Japan they introduce, like you're debating which food to introduce. Like Mm -hmm. in India, they give them a different food first. And in Japan, they give them a different, like it's different all over the world and it's fine. Right. So why are you so worried about it? And But what always bothered me about it was it's not a no cost way to live. It creates anxiety in the family. It also creates a family that is entirely centered around the child. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of families tell you what this is like since you don't have kids you know nap time is sacred they can never be out of the house at nap time it's like i'm like no fall asleep in your stroller i got shit to do right i think the the threading and the anxiety around every decision it teaches a child i i just Mm -hmm. i think it creates an anxious family it teaches them that they're the center of every sort of situation and that there is in fact a perfect outcome if you just debate it hard enough and Mm -hmm. you just get enough data. Like I want less data on how to raise my children. Yeah. And to your point about there is a perfect outcome. My 
physics teacher in high school always talked about within physics, there's this principle, there is no such thing as a free lunch, right? So every, it's, if you move an object, there's going to be a cost, right? It's going to cost energy or whatever it is. So I think something really similar applies here. As you said, the person's intentions are, I'm going to protect my kid from weird eating or whatever, but there is going to be a cost, which is anxiety, potentially like narcissism, because you're creating a child that thinks it's the boss of the world, right? So there is this cost not only to the child, but also to society, because we're raising these little psychopaths, right? Uh, and I would say that like there's something distinctly of our time happening where people think there is no cost, which yes. is odd. Yeah, I mean, I believe there's also a cost to being unable to make any decisions. Making no decision has a cost. Mm -hmm. Putting off making a most things are you can correct if you make a poor choice. Let's say you go to the wrong college. Okay, <laughs> that sucks. You can actually transfer. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some things that aren't. Here's a big decision. How, should I have children? Right. Right? Fine, debate it. Don't debate it too long or you're not going to be able to if you want to you know, debate it. I saw on Emily Oster's Instagram the other day, that's the most frequent question she gets. Like, should we have children? We're afraid that we'll sometimes be unhappy. You will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should stop putting, <laughs> even considering that you're you, going to be unhappy. And guess what? You also will be if you don't, don't have yeah. them. And, so, and also, aren't you currently sometimes unhappy? Like one would think, one would hope, right? It's it just, well, I this don't know. is also, this is, so I, I think one of the hardest parts of the, the times we live in is that there's a confluence of factors at work always, right? One of the things that Jonathan Haidt writes about so well in The Coddling of the American Mind, which, slight tangent, I always find it fascinating when, like, the Wall Street Journal is just, like, learning about Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. Like, we, we've been talking about this guy for, like, five years now. You guys are just getting hip to this? But whatever. He talks about how one of the factors in this is that – People have fewer kids, right? So then they put more resources into that two children they have or the one I child think that's they have. correct, 100%. And additionally, there is this paradox of choice, right? That we have so many options. It didn't used to be that anybody thought about whether they should have kids because they, they just, just had kids. It was just how you move through the world. So I think we're then prone to this analysis, this paralysis by analysis of well, what if I hadn't had those kids? Whereas before we had removed that choice. You just didn't choice. even think didn't, about it. Didn't but think I about think, that. I think we're overthinking everything. Look, I think it's, it's I, if somebody really, really doesn't want children, mm -hmm. I don't have them. Please do not have them. I'm not here to convince you to have them. I just, it's not a good sort of process or mm -hmm. dynamic to debate it for 10 years and think there's some perfect outcome. If you have children, if you have one, if you have four, if you have none, you will be unhappy sometimes. That's not a that's not a question that can be answered, you know, by a crystal ball. It, well, it can be. You will be. <laughs> right. You will actually be unhappy sometimes, no matter what. And I, it just feels like it, we think too much. Like, do more, think less. Mm -hmm. Just like do the thing. Do you th do you think that? Because I was my brain went to should we be training young people? to manage suffering somehow. I think culturally throughout history, we have probably done that, but I'm not sure that was overt. What do you think it was just like built baked in? I think you tell them to do stuff. 
Well, but I mean, and like, they will suffer because right. they will fail. Right. I guess I mean when I look when I think about maybe like the the American Indian vision quest, right? You would send young people out to do these difficult things, and there would be this understanding that like that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to go out and like stay in the woods for the night or whatever it might be. So are you saying that it would mostly be through the action? So it's just I think it's through the action. I think we overthink whether or not to do something based on whether or not we will be successful at it. Whereas you want your kid to just do stuff. Go try out for the basketball team. Even if you know your kid sucks and isn't going to make it, there's something positive in that. Mm. They failed. So they it, learned to be a little more resilient. So culturally, it wasn't so much that we needed or ever trained people to deal with suffering. We just trained them to do more things and then suffering came because of that. I, that's my, I, I mean, I, I, I hadn't thought of it before, but I'm, I'm thinking it now. Now we tell them, don't be cautious. Don't do it unless you're sure. I don't know. Maybe do this instead. It's like mm. we're paralyzed with indecision because we're trying to predict the perfect outcome. Right. No, I, I think that. Apply to, I mean, do you know, you know, I have, college-aged children, one out of college. Like, people apply to, like, 40 colleges. <sighs> yeah, that seems exhausting. Why? So tiring. I um, mean, do they even want to go to all those places? It's like they're trying to, to have so many, in this instance, so many irons in the fire that you can get the perfect option. I mean, I, you know, I said to my kids, apply to five. Don't apply to any that you wouldn't actually want to go to. Mm-hmm. If you don't get in any, we'll try again next year. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Tell right. me where you're applying. Here, I'll pay for the application. If you want help reading an essay, I'll do it. But like, they apply to 40. They get tutors to write the paper. They get tutors to take the SAT. They get, I mean, the kid's not even doing it. Yeah. And and some of this must be traced to the pressures of social media, right? In, in thinking that there is that perfect outcome out there, what sure. I mean is... And I don't know that there's an answer to this, and maybe we can dive into how we would fix this. I think because we see so many successes on social media in particular, it's hard to remember that life is suffering. No, Very few people post, post pictures of themselves of on the couch in a malaise, unless it's performative, <laughs> right? Unless it's a part of their shtick. Yeah, apparently there's like a whole corner of... TikTok that is just that. Oh, really? I, don't, okay. I haven't found I it, but like teens yeah. with, you know, emo- severe emotional disorders um, or claiming to have them. I think that's it. I also think it's the parents' self-worth being wrapped up in the child. Mm, yeah. You know, if I think about, if we talked about the college admission scandal, probably because I'm yeah, obsessed a little with bit. it. Yeah. But like, think about that. Think about what that does to a child. In in many instances, they the child didn't know that the parents were doing this whole cheaty thing so they could go to school. And mm. sometimes they found out after and they were like, why wasn't the school that I got into okay? Well, because it wasn't okay for the parents' social media. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it certainly plays a part, but it's complicated. And this idea, and I think you started to touch on it before, people have fewer children, they have them later. They have these careers. Their whole life is curated to present a certain image. You know, Mm. they brand themselves. Well, you can't have a kid that's a total fuck up and brand yourself as this like together professional lady, right? Yeah. So the kid is sort of, whether they realize it or not, kind of like an accessory or an aspect of their identity. Mm. Yeah, that's so... Which is a totally different thing. I know. Sorry, I put a wrench. No, no, no. That was. I was just thinking about how to frame what I'm about to say. I, in my family, um, 
had a, a second cousin of mine die when he was 17. It was very sad. It was uh, reported to us that he had been in a car accident, walked home and died of like brain bleed. Well, it turned out that he had killed himself, but his parents were very well to do and um, also had one of them had a profession where it would be real, real bad if your kid had killed himself based on what this person did for a living. And I remember in the weekend of the funeral, we all went to this funeral funeral weekend. It slowly started to come out what had actually happened. And watching, this was, a, again, a, a pretty high society family, watching how they were trying to cover that up and, and how sad that was to witness our society sort of pressuring them to have this response. Like if, if your child were to kill him or herself, it's not your fault. Right. But I think we would say that uh, people have just internalized that it is my fault somehow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and obviously you don't know how to talk about that because you weren't there for it. Right. So I don't want to put you on the spot. But no, I think there's this weird thing now, which I don't know how to kind of resolve with what we've been talking about, which mm-hmm. is you have to present this perfect life. There's also this sort of equal and opposite trend mm-hmm. or movement amongst young people in particular with, and F- Freddie DeBoer writes about this a lot, this sort of like performative illness. Mm-hmm. He was in fact on Barry Weiss's podcast talking, talking about, about that, that yeah. very thing. Yeah. Now I'm not involved in 14 year old, whatever the corner of the internet where that is happening. And I don't really want to find it, but I very much believe it because victimhood confers some sort of stature in the world today. And it could be very much a response to that other thing. Mm-hmm. I, it might just be the equal and opposite of the, my life is perfect. It's the, everything is wrong. My life is suffering and pain. But what I, there's a third thing, mm. <laughs> which you and I have talked about, which I think is around this idea that we, don't need to suffer. It's this mass medicalization. Mm. It's all, there's so many issues, right? right? Like I never need to feel sad. I never need to deal with a child that acts a little different than any other in the classroom. Just put them on Ritalin. I never need to um, feel anything. Yeah. And that we're also not allowed. It's like you're saying we get, and this is why potentially we're going to do many episodes of this podcast because it it requires a lot of teasing or teasing out. I was just talking to somebody today about how much pressure there is in the world to not complain, right? Like that we, we have raised ourselves to think like, well, I should speak positively and I shouldn't complain because I'm in a place of privilege or whatever you want to say. Right. And I was saying to this person, I'm fed up with the week I'm having. And tonight I'm going to go have at least three beers with my friend Scott and bitch and moan about the world. Right. And I think there's so much value in that. It's, it's that that's what we talk about. Complaints are kind of fodder for conversation and that that's okay. Right. That there's, there's a lot of suffering that like we're saying, and that it's okay to just say, you know what, I've had a fucking bad week and I'm going to drink three beers and talk to you about it, right? Yeah. Like, But we're, I think we're also trained to keep all of this inside. Somehow, simultaneously, we're told to tell everybody everything, but we're also trained- That's what trained, I mean. There's all these conflicting like, things. Yeah, but and- we're also trained, like, you, you can't be that- Negative. Well, because this I blame the self-help movement, which I loathe, but it's mm. like, you know, the, what's that book? Is it The Power or the, no, not The Power, the- 
whatever, where you put all good things into the world the and secret? you make your yeah, the mood, <laughs> the power is a novel that is totally different. Um, you make your mood board and you put all good things into the world, and if you do that, they will manifest themselves, which mm-hmm. is not true. Right. It, but if you complain all the time, you're probably not going to get to work on doing some of the good things. So it's a balance. Yeah. Well, but I, it's, it comes back to what you said about raising a child. They're going to eat They're organisms. They're going to figure out the way to th- thriving and fur- flourishing, flourishing. No. Um, and I think it's, that's similar with this idea of like complaining to somebody else that you care about. And then together you work toward a positive. That's just like a natural human behavior that somehow we're having to reteach ourselves. I think a lot of what's going on in the world right now is we're having to reteach ourselves natural human behavior. Yeah. Like complaining and then getting to a point where you're like, you know what? Feel better. and I feel better. And here's my outlook for the future. And here's how I'm going to change things. That's kind of the natural progression. But I think and this is, again, like you said, one of many factors, we almost don't allow ourselves to complain. We say, well, I shouldn't complain. Everything's pretty good. And like, da, 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 da. But don't you find some people just complain all the time? Of course. And that's back to our <laughs> earlier point. The people who complain too much need to need the secret. Right. And the people who are always in Bottling the secret <laughs> need to like Have let a go moment. and bitch a little bit, you know? Like, that's yeah. what I feel honestly, the closest with someone is when they will truly tell me like, what's bothering you? I don't, I don't need to hear about how everything's going great. That's so boring. I'm not interested. And I think in our suffering is when we become our most human and most relatable too. Well, see, so I think this is the thing. If we go back to the parenting and the sort of overanalyzing of every decision, Mm -hmm. my goal and I would say I've been successful with one who was launched and, you know, the other three, it remains to be seen. They're not launched yet. I want them to be able to make their own decisions. I want them, whether good or bad, you know, ideally more are good than bad. Some will be bad, but that's fine. And then they have to live with the consequences of that decision. So what I've tried to do is the most important thing is they know they're loved, right? If your child grows up and knows that he or she was loved, then they're in pretty good shape. Right. Mm -hmm. Then I tried to create the conditions for them to find the thing that they love to do, Mm -hmm. not inflict my loves or my hopes and dreams on them, but give them the space to do it. Because if they can find something they love to do, they're more likely to stay out of trouble and do other things. And three, give them the space to make their own decisions from a fairly young age and make mistakes when they make those decisions and help them kind of work through the challenges of that and say, you can always come and talk it through with me. You can always complain about the outcome. I'll Mm. always be here to listen, but you have to make this decision yourself. That sounds great. Sign me up. I'm in. Do you need a mom? (laughs) I need need some parenting. (laughs) Do you need a mom? Yeah. I'm not saying it's perfect and I'm not, I just, I have seen parents of my generation with with kids that are at the older side and they raise these kids who literally they're paralyzed. They can't make any decisions because, like I said, every decision is so consequential and they think there's a perfect outcome. There is no perfect outcome guaranteed with any. Mm-hmm. You will suffer and be miserable. At certain- Even if you make a great decision, you might suffer and be miserable about something else. Like, it's inevitable. Well, I, I think in some cases, if you're not suffering, you're doing something wrong. You're not pushing yourself. So if you think about the corporate ladder world that you lived in, by getting a promotion to a new title, 
responsibility. You're probably going to suffer more in the short term because it's going to be a harder job. More stressful. Right. Then your pre- your previous job was probably already getting easy. And so as you go through life, you should probably be suffering more in plateaus. Yeah. Or, or you're you, doing something wrong. Yeah. Or you take it to the personal realm. And like I said, having kids isn't right for everyone. But if you have children, you will have very miserable, sleepless nights at first. You will worry about them all the time and try not to show that, you know, mm-hmm. try to just <laughs> seem proud and confident. And, but like, yeah, it comes with really hard stuff, but you don't get all the great stuff. You know, if right. you get married, which I have done, you will have moments where you want to rip their eyes out. Which you uh, sent me a piece by Michelle Obama, <laughs> right. right? Or it wasn't by her, but it was she I, was talking about. I think it's from her book, or I, I yeah, think I, her I, her book is out, which I won't read. But everyone's publishing excerpts and talking mm-hmm. about it, and she talks about. I think she talks in the book about a ten year stretch where she really hates being married to Brock. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, Right. So imagine ten that years. 10 years of one of the most popular people of the last 50 years. And it was still brutal. And she said she, when they had young children, it's a mm. very difficult time. And, um, but she says she was glad she's glad she's stuck it out, you know, right. and having building a relationship with someone that you trust and that you've been with many years and that you, it's a lovely thing. Mm-hmm. It does bring you great joy. That doesn't mean it's fun all the time. Yeah, this makes me think of of periods in my basketball career that really were, for me, suffering, right? When I was in the minor leagues, for example, and I thought, I'm so far from where I am wanting to be. And I think some of that suffering came from comparing myself to others, which is not the best kind of suffering. But some of it, too, was also we were talking earlier about like outcomes versus process there was this sense of not knowing how to get a particular outcome. Like what more do I need to do? Like, why am I in this situation? There was also the suffering of loneliness, right? Of traveling constantly and just being in, in flux about who my relationships were going to be, even friendships. But looking back at that, it brings me so much comfort to have gotten through that. There are times now in my life where I'm suffering in in small bouts, weeks or months that might not be going so well. And I feel like I'm able to connect very quickly to you've done this before. It's going to be okay. I mean, it seems so cliche, but if you don't do anything that is hard ever in your life, you're not going to have achieved anything that Mm -hmm. brings you any real satisfaction. And I don't mean an achievement like a job or even a book, but like, being married is hard. Mm-hmm. Raising children is hard. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Who's the one who always says, we can do hard things? I think it's Glennon Doyle, I, I mean, I, which I think is dumb. But we can do hard things. And if we avoid all hard things, mm-hmm. we don't get to do any good things. And this would actually, I, I don't know how to make this call to action for the world, but I wish we as a culture would attempt some hard things like I'm watching some construction outside the window and it's amazing that we can build a building as fast as we can build a building right but where are we applying this ingenuity that's so at our fingertips now it seems like we're applying it to like well your headphones should not have wires now like I want us to I want to go to other planets or some shit like that that's like hard you know what I mean like how do we how do we get back to that because it seems like a lot of our efforts now are more about ease instead of 
attempting difficult things as a society. And this isn't, I don't have an answer to this, but it, it, it's, it's back in the back of my brain. There's a value in that sort of national aspiration. I mean, right. space, yeah, you know, space back was, in the, is the obvious one from yeah. our childhoods, right? Where we were, I was, I was of the impression that by now we would be like yeah. bopping around amongst space I always, stations. I know. I always sort of feel like the space thing is stupid. Like who cares? There's enough shit to do down here. But if right. you hear Musk talk about it, it is interesting. It's about this sort of national, this aspiration of doing something that's <laughs> yeah, kind of like beyond the imagination. And you look back at in time in the, 60s or whatever it was, we mm. went to the moon for the first time. And there was this like, this sort of unification around this aspiration that seemed impossible. Yeah. And I, and I think that's also true with architecture, right? Yes. So thinking about, and, and these things when I was younger see, did seem trivial, but now as I age, I'm realizing like, no, great civilizations almost always have these works of art and these works of architecture that are inspiring and remind us that that through the suffering, there is greatness to be found on the other side. And it just seems like we are so collapsing in on ourselves and thinking instead about like, how do I make it easier to send this email instead of how do I go? Or how do I take everyone's (laughs) gas stove away? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Instead of like, okay, if you're going to take away my gas stove, then have an alternative that's like the coolest thing that's ever been invented, right? Oh, no, they're just going to take it away. (laughs) Right. And if you don't want it to be taken from your home, you're a very bad person. You're a bad person. So I I think that's, I guess, as we're we're wrapping up, I would uh, maybe leave the listener with this question. Like, how, as a society, do we move toward aiming towards... I was going to say greatness, but then that makes me sound like I'm going to say make America great again. But, but hard things like we can be, do hard like, things. Yeah. Like if we could build, like if, if you and I drive from here past some of the grand buildings of Denver, which are not that grand, but they at least tried the Capitol building. I don't know what that building is across from it, but they're beautiful. And they're the art museum's beautiful. Right. So let's do more of that. Let's figure out how to do more of those things and less of Instagram filtering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the sort of transformational things that we've done, not me, I had nothing to do with it in the last 20 years have all been technology. Yeah. And it's all like micro technology. And it's not a thing you can see that's mm-hmm. like the symbol of achievement. Right. And some, some people would say then, well, what we have done is to, I guess, make lives easier. But that's sort of the thesis of our entire episode is That's not the point of life. Life is always going to be suffering. So if you're going to be suffering, you might as well be achieving something badass along the way. Yeah. It's not all suffering to be clear, but the Mm -hmm. suffering begets the achievement and to protect a child. Cause I do think parents can make a difference here to protect a child Mm -hmm. from any suffering or think that you can is bad. We will raise very unresilient yeah. Which is so, uh, this is the last thing I'll say. The irony in all of this is these are the same people who, you know, my bugaboo during COVID were like, oh, kids are resilient. Well, not really, because you didn't raise them to be. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You trained a whole bunch of them to not be that way. Yeah. And building resilience, like I said, it doesn't mean torturing them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean not giving them an education. Right. And it is, there's a, an obvious corollary there, right? Like all of the evidence about how important it is for children to be exposed to all viruses. 
Yeah. Right. And, or, and how that helps them build immunity is similar to you need to suffer so that later in life. Right. That's the analogy. Or even like, you know, there's a lot of folks that were saying when schools were closed, I promise I'll stop talking about this, that it, for a lot of children, it was better. They didn't have to have difficult interactions in school. They weren't bullied. No, that's bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's yeah. again, if I make my world small enough, I will have nothing unpleasant that ever happens to me. Guess what also happens? You've made your world very, very small. Mm -hmm. You haven't learned how to have difficult interactions. You haven't learned how to stand up for yourself. You need to do that. You need to suffer. Yeah. Suffering is good. (laughs) That's all that needs to be said about it.